1: just the truth. Today marks the one-year anniversary of 15 days to slow the spread. It's been a really long 15 days for America and really throughout the world as we've battled with the COVID-19 crisis across the country. And I wanted to, on this anniversary, talk about the truth of the COVID-19 vaccine. We've seen a lot of different politicking from the right and the left either pushing or really not wanting to take the vaccine. We've also seen a lot of the politicking in terms of what our constitution allows for state and local leaders to do uh, with shutdowns, with requiring possibly a vaccine. And so I wanted to bring on a very special guest who is a great friend of mine from Creation Ministries International, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, to give us just the truth about the vaccine. So Dr. Sarfati, thanks so much for joining me tonight on Just oh. the Truth. You are a, uh, a physical chemist, and you've mm-hmm. also written a, a lot of uh, best-selling books, which we have up there on the screen. Um, I've actually read all of these. I highly recommend mm. them uh, from Creation Ministries International. You can go to creation.com. So Dr. Sarfati, thanks so much for being with me.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been an honor to, to see you again.
1: Absolutely. So we're getting to just the truth of vaccines. So first, there's so much that is overly politicized misinformation, intentional disinformation all across social media. So explain to people first off, what is the vaccine? How does an RNA vaccine work? Can we truthfully call this a vaccine?
2: Well, yes, uh, a vaccine by definition is any um, biological entity that will train the adaptive immune system to recognize a dangerous disease causing germ, a virus, or a bacterium. So this qualifies as a vaccine I mean, the original vaccine was um some matter from a cowpox scar the latin word for cow is vacca which is where we get the word vaccine from then you have dead or weakened germs that's another type of vaccine you have parts of germs that's the pertussis acellular pertussis you have um, deactivated toxins called toxoids that's what your tetanus and diphtheria vaccines are so a lot a wide range of things can be vaccines now this one is quite a new technology but a very really brilliant one Because what it does, it uh, takes advantage of the amazing design in the living cell, in our cells, uh, that makes proteins. And what this does, the RNA is translated by a machine called the ribosome, a very elaborate machine in the cell, the ribosome. It makes the spike protein that the virus has. uh, It goes onto the cell and the immune system says, hey, stranger danger, I better destroy this. And take note, so if I see it again, I'm ready to battle it. So it makes the antibody. So when the actual virus comes in with that spike protein, uh, the immune system says, I've seen you before, prepare to die, <laughs> and destroys it. That, that's what the vaccine does.
1: So this type of RNA technology, which uh, this was the first time with this vaccine that I had ever heard of that type of technology, has that been used in vaccines successfully before, or is this the first one?
2: I mean, there are later things that have been used. I mean, but because of the urgency of this pandemic, we had to get something a lot more quickly than it has. But it was using existing technology, but applied it to making a vaccine against this horrible virus.
1: Yeah, so, so with that, of course, that raises the question of how quick is too quick? A lot of uh, the questions, and of course, you're going to be answer, uh, answering some of the viewers' questions uh, later on in the program. I'm really excited about that. Uh, one of the main questions that we've been getting is, uh, can we rely on this type of technology since we don't have an understanding of the long-term effects, and it also hasn't gone through all of the red tape, and does it really need to before we can rely on the efficacy?
2: I mean, I would argue that most things actually go through too much red tape because there are two things you can do wrong. You can actually approve something too quickly and it's dangerous, or you can slow up something that's helpful. I mean, both of these are going to cost lives and health, but uh, the bureaucrats have an incentive to... um, delay because who's going to blame them if people are dying for years while they're holding up the process no one actually makes a connection that you guys are actually holding it up and costing lives but if they approve thalidomide too quickly well um you could actually blame someone there so the incentive as Milton Friedman pointed out 50 years ago is to hold up things and so this is actually quite good that we she this time we've slashed all that red tape because there are costs to holding up this vaccine this disease has killed half a million people in this country about two and a half million around the world. So there are costs to delaying this thing. Okay, there may be benefits to delaying, but there's also costs. And I think people need to realize there are costs and benefits. There's no perfect solution, just uh, trade-offs, as Thomas Sowell loves to point out.
1: Right. And so when we're looking at uh, the people who are more fearful of taking the vaccine, uh, who think that this is, you know, frankly, a, a government conspiracy, uh, looking mm. back at President Trump's administration and uh, the Operation Warp Speed, and he said exactly what you're saying, which is that the red tape was just holding things up and he wanted to move faster. Is that mm. something that, uh, that you think from a scientific perspective makes sense in terms of combating uh, the? the ill effects of COVID-19.
2: Oh, Most definitely. And also, see, with this vaccine, there's no shortage of getting volunteers because we know there's an illness around. So there are plenty of people lining up to be volunteers. Well, if it's something like rotavirus, well, it's very hard to try and find a vaccine for something that's fairly obscure, nasty, but obscure. But this is everyone knows it. So thousands of people lined up to volunteer. So it's gone through thousands of clinical uh, people through clinical trials. And now it's, it's been it's um, almost 400 million doses have been administered around the world so if it was really as bad as people think we should be seeing millions of people dropping like flies But we don't Uh, even see thousands of people, you see.
1: Right. And so, but of course, there's the headlines every day. I get them in my inbox saying, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, there's so many problems and, you know, we've stopped the effects of this. So we have to uh, take a break, but we'll be right back to talk more with Dr. Jonathan Sarfati about the truth behind the COVID-19 vaccine and what you need to know. We'll be right back.
0: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
1: today marks the one-year anniversary of 15 days to slow the spread. So we're continuing the conversation with my good friend, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, who's a physical chemist from Creation Ministries International and the best-selling author of a wide variety of books that you can check out on creation.com from everything from uh, responding to the argument of evolution, refuting evolution, to uh, why Christianity and the biblical worldview is the only truthful worldview, as well as a lot of other uh, answers in the book of Genesis so Dr. Sarfati thanks so much again for being with me and before uh, we went to the break we were talking about the headlines that I get in my inbox every day that seem to just be clickbait or at least um, some what of fear-mongering headlines that frankly are from a lot of the sources on the right that are trying to uh, to tell people to maybe be cautious or potentially fearful of the vaccine because there have been supposedly so many adverse reactions like these blood clots um, and they've stopped administering the vaccine overseas, uh, the AstraZeneca one. Uh, what's the truth behind the statistics here?
2: Well, okay, see, 100 million people or more have been vaccinated in the United States, okay? And the thing is, um, about six, uh, seven thousand people die in the States every day. Okay, so. Even if we just stopped at 100,000, 100 million people, we'd expect over the next year to have about 700 plus thousand vaccinated people dying, okay, just because that's the natural death rate of people in America. But the death rate of the coronavirus is about 2% mortality, okay, that's far more. So, in fact, the average lifespan in the States has dropped measurably because of the virus, but also a third of survivors. Have what they call long haul COVID. It's a brain fog. They report loss of sense of taste and smell, uh, chronic fatigue, uh, just general illness for months on end. You see, so even surviving is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, so it's important to look at the numbers. I mean, again, if they got hundreds, uh, over 100 million people vaccinated in the states, why are we not seeing half a million people? or more dying or blood clotting or anything like that nothing like that the the numbers are so much lower for the vaccine than the virus the virus is, is at least a thousand times more dangerous than the vaccine i mean it should be obvious i think because um, a virus inv- invades a cell And it forced the cells machinery to churn out a thousand more copies of that virus, which then burst out of the cell, uh, repeat the process. Next cycle, a thousand more cells infected, then a million more viruses are going to be produced. So the virus is far more fearful than the vaccine could possibly be. Otherwise, we're living in a magic universe if somehow a, a vaccine is more dangerous than a fast multiplying virus.
1: So so with those statistics that you laid out, is that comparable so far with the data that we do have to other vaccines that people do regularly take? If you're typically someone who gets, um, you know, for example, all of your boosters as a child and then if you Mm -hmm. ever go overseas or even just the regular flu vaccine, um, is that Mm -hmm. within the same type of margin of negative reactions?
2: Well, everything is going to have some reaction because some of the things that, that people talk about reaction are just your immune system doing its job. You see, your immune system, uh, even the things that you get when you first feel sick from a disease, is actually your immune system reacting like a fever. The chill and fever is your immune system trying to fight the bacterium or virus. Okay. Inflammation is a response. So uh, it's going to respond that way to the vaccine as well. But the difference is the vaccine isn't fighting back against you. While the virus or bacterium is fast re- reproducing and fighting back against you,
1: hmm. so that's,
2: that's so. That's,
1: when yeah. you have so when you, so for example, I've gotten the flu shot before, and um, the too. last couple of times that I have, um, which I don't annually, but um, but I have for various reasons, um, a couple of times, and typically as soon as I get that, over the next a couple of days and even up to a week, I don't feel that great. And a lot of people will say, oh, well that's a negative reaction or that's something that shouldn't happen. But what I'm hearing from, from you say is that that's actually a good thing and that's something that is preventing possibly further complications if I actually got the flu strain that year.
2: I mean, because the flu is a very dangerous disease. I mean, um, thousands of Americans have died every year from influenza, okay, uh, even young people. And the sad thing about flu is that the flu can turn your own, own immune system against you. It causes what's called a cytokine storm, which actually inflames tissues, fills your lungs with liquid. It's a horrible thing. And young people have stronger immune systems, which can be turned against the person. That's why the Spanish flu of, of after World War One killed so many young people because their immune system were were turned on them. Okay, so if you're worried about an immune reaction from the vaccine, you've got far more to worry about from the virus itself.
1: That's really fascinating. And I think that a lot of people um, with this overly politically charged environment, are seeing this through the lens of politics uh, rather Mm -hmm. than the lens of what a vaccine actually does. And so you're, of course, part of Creation Ministries International, Mm -hmm. which is uh, very obviously based in uh, the biblical worldview foundation and viewing our natural world as God's design. And so for the people um, and the Christians who may be watching this program or people who are actually surprised that you're taking a pro-vaccine approach. What's your response uh, to them about uh, why this isn't an inconsistent position?
2: Well, okay, see, God created everything very good. Seven times in Genesis 1 he said it was good. The seventh time was very good. You see, so when God made Adam and Eve, they were created perfect. Now, they would have had to be, have a perfect immune system because, you know, our body has more bacterial cells in mostly in your, in your small, in your, sorry, large intestine, You more bacterial cells in human cells. They're good for you and you've got about ten times more viruses than bacterial cells which help to regulate it. So they're doing a good thing, but the immune system has to keep them in check and the right place. So even Adam would have had an immune system to distinguish between self and non-self. But as even Adam sinned, he disobeyed God, so God cursed the whole creation. We're all going downhill. And nowadays, our once perfect immune system isn't always working perfectly. So sometimes we can get overwhelmed by bacteria, viruses, fungi. You see. But what God has done for us in His mercy is given us a trainable immune system the immune system can take note of something that's invading and prepare for meeting it a second time and the beauty is it doesn't have to be a deadly germ it can be a dead germ that's what a vaccine is it's it's an, an imitation of something that will hurt you but will still train the immune system to be ready to give it target practice so it's ready to kill that thing next time
1: I've actually never heard it described uh, that we had an immune system before uh, the fall, mm. which is, of course, described in the book of Genesis and the biblical account of creation. And so um, describe that a little more in depth. Um, that's that's actually really fascinating to me that, that we had an immune system initially, and now it's just fallen. What is the biblical design and God, the wonderfully made um, immune system and uh, how that works in our lives now, of course, when we know that we live in a fallen world.
2: Well, yes, because we'd be eaten alive by, our, by the bacteria inside our intestines if we didn't have an immune system keeping them in check and the viruses is uh, uh, there as well. Um, But the point is the fall has made things go downhill. I mean, sometimes I have to wear glasses to look at something uh, close up, you see. So my eyes were perfect. God designed perfect eyes for Adam, but we live in a fallen world, so our eyes don't always work uh, perfectly, especially when you get older, okay? and the same goes for our immune system. Even though God designed it perfectly, we've, we now live in a foreign world where it doesn't always work perfectly. So sometimes it needs to be trained, and God has given us this immune system that can be trained. And in fact, you might say there are two branches of the immune system. You've got the innate immune system with things like your skin, the acid of your stomach. You've got general white blood cells that eat up things uh, that invade. So that's the sort of innate immune system, but then you have the adaptive immune system, which is what I've been describing that will train itself to recognize a specific um, virus or bacterium and be ready to to really give it um, destroy the thing.
1: And you wrote um, a really great piece on creation.com, which people can go and um, and and look at and read, which is responding specifically to the vaccine. And um, you actually have a lot of different subjects in that, that respond very directly mm-hmm. to people's questions. Um, so with the RNA technology that you're describing that give that uh, target practice, as you described, I think that's a great term for it. Um, are people, are you seeing kind of a, a trend among people that their response once they understand this technology, they're learning about the vaccine, that that can override some of the fears of the headlines? Or what's uh, typically been the response when you've engaged with people on this?
2: I mean, some people are genuinely vaccine hesitant. They don't know the issues. They've uh, picked up the scaremongering and they don't know what to think. And sometimes when you you go through what the the immune system really is, oh, I get it now. So I've actually helped people understand it. But of course, you've got the fanatical um, anti-vaxxers who just don't want to to change their view. That's sort of a harder one to change around. So I'm really uh, discussing this for the benefit of those who are on the fence, who who are wondering what should we do. I'm hearing lots of different sides and I'm saying that um, anything you think the vi- the vaccine's going to do, the virus is going to do a thousand times worse.
1: And so when you Whatever hear when you hear this phrase that's been used uh, by more people on the left, the trust the science, and you're you're hearing that to describe a lot of different things. How should we, uh, meaning people like me who aren't scientists, who are looking mm-hmm. at this, looking for the truth in good faith? Uh, What is the science that we should follow and understand and what is the stuff that we should just kind of reject from the mainstream media?
2: Well, I mean, the real science are things that you can test and repeat and observe. And vaccination is good science. I mean, I'm a physical chemist. I use uh, laser light to shine selenium, uh, lasers onto selenium ring and cage molecules. I looked at, at the spectrum of these things. That's good science. I've got some geneticist colleagues. I've got people who have uh, um, plant physiologists, um We had uh, nuclear physicists on on board. We had a person who's a cancer researcher. This is all observable, repeatable science. And vaccination was invented by people who had a very biblical worldview. You had uh, Edward Jenner, Louis Pasteur, uh, who were very biblical in their approach, and they thought vaccination was doing Following in Jesus' footsteps. You would think of Jesus when he was walking on earth, God incarnate, he uh, cured diseases and um, blindness and deafness and lameness. And what he was doing is alleviating the effects of the curse.
1: That's a wonderful description. And that's what
2: vaccines do. Absolutely. And
1: we're, we're using the science that God has given us in this discoverable nature uh, of the reality to which God has presented us. I think C.S. Lewis describes that in Mere Christianity so, so well. So I want to get into more of that science and uh, the topic of creation as well in the next segment, continuing my conversation with Dr. Jonathan Surfati here on Just the Truth. Welcome back to Just the Truth, where I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, a physical chemist and, of course, part of Creation Ministries International. And, Dr. Sarfati, before the break, uh, you were talking and describing about how we use science in the discoverable nature of our reality to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, who, of course, uh, during his miracles and um, and how he uh, walked this earth and, and healed physical ailments through natural discovery of science, then we can continue to help physical ailments. And that brings me to kind of a broader uh, conversation, which is why it's so important for people to have a biblical worldview as their foundation as they approach topics like science. Because typically, you know, we think of faith, um, or some people think faith generally just means what we believe in our morals and our ethics and what we do in the four Uh, walls of the church. And science is something totally separate. But describe why it's so important to have a truthful foundation to approach science.
2: Well, because I mean, science itself wouldn't work unless you have an orderly universe. You have to have an objective reality. So it doesn't matter whether you believe um, in law of gravity. You try driving off a cliff and see if it's, it's there or not. And this goes back to the creation account, because God made man on day six, and yet you've got days one to five. Uh, where there is no man there, but clearly there's an objective reality. There's heaven, and there's earth, and there's the, um, the sun, moon, and stars, the plants, the fish, the, the the birds. You see, these are objectively real before man existed, so there's an objective reality out there that comes from the creation account. But also, we have a divine lawmaker, you see, if Zeus and his gang were in charge, you wouldn't expect science to happen. Uh, science was still born in in classical Greece and ancient China because they had no idea of a, of a lawgiver who made an orderly universe. And you cannot prove an orderly universe by using science because you'd have to assume the order to try to prove the order in your experiment, you see. So science historically grew out of this Christian worldview starting in the Middle Ages and then going on to people like uh, Sir Isaac Newton, heard of him. He wrote more about the Bible than he wrote about science. Um, Kepler uh, said he was thinking God's thoughts after him. Um, Michael Faraday, the inventor of the generator, he was a member of what you call a fundamentalist sect if if he was alive today. Uh, Maxwell, the founder of electromagnetism, one of Einstein's heroes, he thought um, uh, he was very much a Bible believer, believed in the flood. He believed that the existence of molecules proved the creator because they clearly manufactured identical things, okay, so that's manufacturing. It's not time and chance. Right. Okay, but without, science, without this worldview, uh, science really has no foundation, even though you might find a lot of people who are not believers who are scientists, but the thing is that they don't seem to realize the foundation they're on. They have to assume a lot of things, while the biblical worldview gives you the reason for these meta-science, these these assumptions that are required for science to work, uh, the big picture assumptions.
1: It sounds a lot like law, <laughs> you know, and also as you're <laughs> describing, well, you uh, you're describing a lot of these uh, scientists throughout the ages who had the biblical worldview. We don't hear that that when people are talking about Isaac Newton or Galileo or any of these things, we tend to, in our current secular humanist society, excise their faith from their work product, uh, just oh, like yeah. we've done with the founding fathers and say, you know, this is just a social contract and we're not on this moral versus immoral track. It's just everything is amoral and we can have morality that is just based on our consent of, uh, of, of our current culture. And so um, as you're describing this and the true history of a lot of these scientists that brought these brilliant discoveries and, and furthered science because of their basis in the christian worldview you've also written a lot of best-selling books and um, one of them specifically is on refuting evolution and this mm-hmm. idea that you know this isn't after millions of years and just chance but we have intelligent design we have a creator and so why is that so important uh, in terms of discoverable truth to recognize, and this isn't just theistic evolution, that to me is kind of the compromise we don't want to have those battles. Uh, Mm -hmm. So why is the seven day literal account and having an intelligent creator as a design so important to the foundation of science?
2: Well, it's because he's creator. He owns us and therefore has the right to make the rules for us, but he loves us, so he makes rules for our good, you see. So if we obeyed the creator's laws, we'd have a much better society, and and the the, the closer our laws come to his objective moral truths, the better they are. If you've got no morality, how do you judge um, Nazi Germany compared to – America today if there's no objective moral standards you can't compare them but when it comes to the creation account you see jesus himself affirmed genesis as literal history he affirmed that marriage is a man and a woman and god created them male and female in his image and also it is being in his image means there's such a thing as human rights because we are image bearers of the creator and therefore human life is sacred from conception to natural death okay that's an important foundation but also we've got the the whole big picture god created perfect he's perfect he created a made a perfect creation and uh, because of our sin because of adam's sin things fell and that's an important thing. That's why we have bad things. That's why disease germs that were once good for us became nasty to us. I mean, most are still good today, by the way, but uh, we do have nasty things. But they, but the God created viruses and bacteria to be good for us. Okay, uh, He created the animals to be good to us, you see. So what we're seeing in the world is a mixture of God's perfect concept of design, but also we're seeing the fall and the effects of the fall, which is why there are nasty things in the world too. And that's why we have to have redemption, which is the whole reason Jesus came to die, it's because... because Adam brought sin, which was related to his physical death, and Jesus came to bring resurrection from the dead. So he was undoing uh, what the first man, Adam, did. Jesus, the last Adam, reversed what the first Adam did. If you haven't got the last Adam, if you haven't got the first Adam, as Genesis tells you, then uh, what is there for the last Adam to do? So a lot of different things. You go to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the resurrection and the gospel. And he goes right back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 uh, to give his uh, theological lessons about the, the gospel and resurrection, but he goes to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and assumes that this is straightforward history, and he assumes his readers were already aware of it. They were discipled in the book of Genesis right from the start of the early church
1: and you know and as I'm listening to you speak I think it's just such a beautiful account of why the Old Testament still matters and why it mm. matters in context and we have to understand uh, the gift of salvation and the truth about uh, the person of Jesus Christ and his lordship based on a complete understanding of the entire word of God and as you're talking um, I'm, I'm assuming that some of the pushback that you often get to this because I, and I know that I've gotten this before is okay well this is a great philosophy and is a great belief. Uh, But how does that reconcile with the science? Because, you know, science tells us that there are millions of years. Science uh, tells us the facts and and all of that. The empirical evidence doesn't show a literal seven-day creation. What's the response to that?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, I want to say that I, I've described science in, in the terms of operational science. So what the dispute is is about history, you so see, you can talk about historical science, but it's a different thing from operational science. And in fact, evolutionists have understood there's a difference between physics and chemistry and evolution that is, is not amenable to the same things as physics and chemistry is because evolution is a historical claim. Now, creation is also a historical claim. It happened in the past. We're not seeing creation happening today, OK? OK, um, we're not seeing um, um, goo to you via the zoo happening today. OK, so again, these are alternate histories of the world. They're not really scientists. It's really a battle of two different histories. And that goes back to your worldview, because I believe Jesus is God and Savior. He affirmed the Bible as literal um straightforward history um, and therefore we have creation in six ordinary days, perfectly a fall, a flood, and tower of Babel, okay, you've got all those things. Evolution doesn't want to believe in a god who did anything like that, so they relate. They have to think of, of things happening today very slowly, so they think of things would have had to take millions of years to form, and therefore humans must have evolved from ape-like creatures and we have, we all can go back to pond scum and supposedly life um, came from non-living chemicals which is a load of nonsense from a chemical point of view. I'm a chemist, I know these things, okay. And, and non living chemicals don't form living cells. Living cells form non living chemicals quite readily. I mean, I guarantee you, you could take any chemical you want to, put it together, any energy source you like, any DNA, RNA, whatever you want, try and get a living side of it. You're not going to do it. So, evolution is dead in the water.
1: Hmm. And yeah, and it's always so interesting to me to see the hypocrisy of, of looking at, for example, the Mars rover and trying to find life on Mars, and what mm-hmm. they would qualify—you know, the, the evolutionary scientists would qualify as life on Mars somehow—is not life here on Earth. Um, so that's just one yeah. uh, big hypocrisy. But something that you pointed out, I think, is is truly fascinating because a lot of the people who are Evolutionists, they would say, oh, well, creation is just a faith system because it's a set of beliefs. But you pointed out rightly that this is about two separate histories. And so we can't go back and repeat evolution within the scientific method either. And so this is really about a worldview position on what history you believe. And so for the skeptic, and you've, of course, uh, written the great book, uh, Christianity for Skeptics, what's the best argument for the historicity of the biblical account over evolution or theistic evolution?
2: Um, a lot of ways I can go for it. I can say, well, Jesus proved his credentials by rising from the dead, and the, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is, is incredibly good history. And because that proved who he, he was, who he said he was, that when he affirms Genesis as real, uh, that would seem to be um, a slam dunk. But also there are things in nature, like, for instance, finding DNA and proteins in dinosaur bones. Now, dinosaurs are supposed to have died out 66 million years ago, but we can measure the rate of DNA and protein breakdown. there's no way it could last even a tenth of that age even if it was frozen uh, all that time and yet dinosaurs are meant to have been warm uh, in warm climates which all these proteins DNA would break down very quickly in the tropical climate dinosaurs are supposed to have lived in and other thing is, people think carbon-14 dating is a big proof of billions of years, but it's the opposite. The fact that it decays so quickly, you shouldn't be able to find it in anything that's even 100,000 years old, and yet we found carbon-14 in diamonds and coal, and probably in dinosaur bones as well. You see, Again, this shows it couldn't have been around long enough, otherwise the carbon-14 would have decayed. Okay, so those are some, some scientific things against the millions of years view.
1: And there's so much more that uh, you have have on the website at creation.com and in all of your best-selling books, Dr. Sarfati, uh, the Genesis account, all of these things at Creation Ministries International. And now we're going to go to the public forum when we come back on Just the Truth.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
1: Welcome back to Just the Truth. And we're in the Public Square segment where you as viewers get to ask your questions. And so joining me tonight in the Public Square to respond to your questions is Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, a physical chemist from Creation Ministries International has been providing this wonderful commentary about the truth of the biblical worldview, the foundation of science, and talking about the truth and the science behind the COVID-19 vaccine. So uh, Dr. Sarfati, our first question... Mm -hmm. is uh, what is the truth on the adverse effects on reproduction reports show a lack of testing and obviously we can't know long-term effects
2: okay if there was a problem with the vaccine there'd be problems with the virus too you can't escape it whatever the RNA vaccine will do the RNA virus will do a thousand times worse and we're not seeing loss of fertility from people who have suffered from the disease therefore we're not going to see it from the people who get the vaccine I think that's a bit of a scaremongering based on some similarity between a spike protein and a certain protein involved with reproduction but that's a very tenuous thing and we're not seeing this in the actual COVID patients so so I think it's I wouldn't worry about that. I'd worry far more about getting the disease itself.
1: Hmm. so do you think that that may have a, a chance to change as we move forward, or because obviously there are people who have uh, recovered from covid who are still uh, have you know healthy pregnancies, healthy babies. Hmm. Um, is this something that we should worry about longer term and that might change?
2: Well, I mean, I think uh... Longer term, we know what what the virus will do long term. It's killed the 2% of people. It's given uh, 30% of people the long haul symptoms. We know what this will do long term. Uh, Yet we've had 400,000, 100 million in the world by now. And also the the trial volunteers and the the, uh, thousands of those have happened by now. So I think we'd we'd know the effects um, if they were going to happen. And the worst effect that happens is anaphylaxis, which is known in about 15 minutes, which is why they'll ask you to stick around uh, for 15 minutes after getting a shot, because then they can uh, give you an EpiPen if you have anaphylaxis. But I think you'd know about it within a few minutes, not not a few years.
1: Mm, that, that makes sense. And uh, so then our next question is, why would someone who is young and healthy get the vaccine when the risk complications are much higher than contracting COVID-19 and having a lethal reaction?
2: Well, I think, again, even with young and healthy people, there's a bigger risk of getting a reaction from the virus itself. I mean, for just about every age group except for young kids, the the, the corona is more dangerous than influenza, and influenza is actually much nastier than people think it is. So even if you're young and healthy, you might have a bad reaction from the virus itself. There have been people who are young and healthy who have died from this thing, even though it mostly affects the old. But also think about your friends and your family. I mean, my parents are in their 80s. I don't want to have a disease and be carrying a mild thing and then infect my 80-year-old parents. You see, think about the other people in your church, your family. Uh, It helps to keep them protected, too. If you are immune, you're less likely to spread it to people you love. So it's a matter of being Christian, isn't it?
1: Um, (laughs) Right.
2: Loving your neighbor. Paul tells us to, to estimate others as more important than yourself, okay?
1: And uh, and along with that, uh, what's your view on whether masks are effective?
2: Well, I, I think masks are effective. Now, that doesn't mean I have to believe in every single government edict, but, I mean, I do think masks are effective. I mean, for instance, when you sneeze or cough, you put your hand over your, your elbow or something because you know a barrier is good against airborne viruses. So even an imperfect barrier like this is better than none at all. In fact, I did a test. There's a video coming that Creation Ministries have put out on this, and I did a test with a pulse oximeter found that my oxygen uh, in, um, intake it was no worse with a mask on. My blood was just as saturated in oxygen with the mask and without it so i think it's a good thing but it doesn't mean i have to believe in every single government edict i mean some of, i think outdoors i wouldn't worry too much indoors yeah i would probably advise it but again uh the inconsistency of some of the government things where apparently um church services are bad but casinos and abortion clinics and and pot shops are fine that's that's politic political but um, i think you can still believe the good science of mask and vaccination without getting into the, the politics we are the, the, but they should be kept separate from each other.
1: Yeah, and that's a great point because there are a lot of people who presume the answer to the scientific question based on what should be more of a legal or constitutional question. And so separating those first, uh, I think is a really wise way to respond to that. Um, So then our next question for Dr. Sarfati, would the body's own antibodies last longer and deter variants better than the vaccine?
2: Well, the thing is, The antibodies are the same whether you get a vaccine or the virus. The difference is the the vaccine doesn't fight back against you. The vaccine doesn't uh, reproduce a thousand times every time it infects your cell, you see. So what the vaccine produces, at least as good antibodies, if not better. There's some diseases where you get far better protection from the vaccine than from the illness. I mean, you can almost die of tetanus and still not be immune. But the tetanus shot is basically 100% effective at preventing tetanus. So I, I think, in, in many cases, the vaccine has better immunity. Also, things like measles. See, measles has recently been found to knock out other immune memories, so it makes you more susceptible to other disease that you were once immune to, and measles cancels out that immunity. So far better to get a measles vaccine than to catch the measles. Uh,
1: and the next question is, uh, let's see, so... I'm hearing reports that this vaccine has um, abortifacients in it. Is that true?
2: I think there's garbled things that, that are going on there. The, the vaccine itself is not abortifacient in the least, okay? To answer that direct question, no, there's no abortifacients in the vaccine, no.
1: And so should we, uh, those of us who have the pro-life view and have the understanding that, you know, we wouldn't be part of science that would do, for example, stem cell research and some of these other uh, questionable ethics, would this vaccine with the RNA technology, how does that differ from maybe some of those concerns?
2: Well, I think the, the issue is that uh, there are there a few aborted babies uh, from decades ago, older than you are, for instance, uh, and the, the cell lines from those aborted babies that have been used are so not not aborted baby cells, but descendants of descendants of descendants. Now, the abortions themselves were sinful, no doubt about that whatsoever. I mean, I, I'm as 100% pro life, okay, as you are. Even for rape and incest, that's not an excuse for aborting a, a, an innocent baby, okay? I agree. Um, the I thing understand. is. Mm. Now, the Issue is that there is rem- the, the things are remote, so I, I, I t- treat it like I mean, would you take an, a, an organ from a murder victim? I think by doing so, you're not condoning the murder, you're not encouraging other people to be murdered for their organs. So there's no moral hazard involved. Okay, so as long as you didn't take part in that murder, had nothing to do with the murder, I think it's acceptable to take that that organ from that murder victim. Now with the um, vaccines, which are made with the cell, fetal cell. Lines, okay the rna vaccines were not made with those cell lines but in the early stage i think one of, one of the cell lines was used in the testing as proof of concept but they were not the rna doesn't need any cell to be cultured on it's cultured it, it's it's multiplied in the lab now viruses need a cell to be cultured on so that's why some have been you have got these fetal cell lines to culture the virus to make some vaccines on okay uh, not the flu shot the flu shots made with chicken eggs and now a dog, a dog kidney cell. So the flu shot has, hasn't even got these ethical problems. Neither that it's a DTaP, that's a bacterial that has no problems. And I think the RNA vaccine, again, it's not even cultured in cells. Um, the AstraZeneca has been cultured, so there's a bit more of a problem there. But I still think if that's the only one you have, I'd take it.
1: Yeah. So, Well, there's so much more that we could ask you, Dr. Sarfati, and definitely go to creation.com to read more from Dr. Sarfati. And if you want to weigh in and ask us a question here, email truth at americasvoice.news, and we'll be right back with more of Just the Truth.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
1: Welcome back to Just the Truth and an important conversation that we've been having about the one-year anniversary today of 15 Days to Slow the Spread. There are so many different states that are still not yet fully open that pretend that they are still under a state of emergency. So the state of California, of course, with Gavin Newsom's recall efforts uh, going on in that state. I'm joined tonight by California Assembly member Kevin Kiley, uh, who has introduced, uh, let's see, the Assembly Resolution number 40. Sex, which is attempting to end the state of emergency in California. So, Assemblyman Kylie, thanks so much for joining me and tell us more about the resolution.
3: Well, sure. The re- resolution would simply uh, exercise the power reserved to the legislature under our Emergency Services Act uh, to terminate the state of emergency and to thereby divest the governor of his emergency powers uh, and to terminate all of his emergency orders. You know, California has had uh, by any measure the worst outcomes of any state during the COVID era. We've had the worst, most severe lockdowns of any state. And as a result right now, our unemployment is second highest in the nation. Uh, We've had the most severe and longest lasting school closures in the state. Right now, we're 50th out of 50 in getting our kids back to the classroom, the percent of kids who have access to in-person instruction. And we've most assuredly done more harm to our kids than any other state as a result. And so you might ask, well, what are we getting in return for uh, all of these sacrifices, for this almost inconceivable social cost? Well, actually, our public health outcomes have been quite poor as well. Uh, According to the CDC's data, California has the seventh highest excess death rate. During the COVID-19 era, and so you know, when you add all of that together, uh, there simply is no basis for further state-level restrictions on businesses, on schools, on anything else. And it's it's uh, well past time that we return power to local communities and ultimately to the people of California to make their own decisions.
1: Well, that was beautifully said. And I commend you for bringing this forward. And I'm wondering, uh, among the other General Assembly members, are you seeing support for this? Uh, Because according to California state law, the emergency powers of the governor will end upon a joint resolution from the legislature. Is there support for this? Do you expect it to pass? Or is this going to be a hard fought battle?
3: Well, it'll be a hard-fought battle, but I'm hoping that you know we'll get some folks who will uh, on the other side of the aisle who will come around to to doing the right thing because they're seeing what's happening to their communities, they're hearing from their own constituents, they know that it's now been uh, over a year and that it's time that we, you know, move away from this autocratic model where Gavin Newsom has claimed that the state of emergency centralizes all of the state's powers in his hands and where he's You know, use that power in incredibly damaging ways. So I'm hoping that, you know, this can be a moment where we move forward on a bipartisan basis to do the right thing for the people of California.
1: Absolutely. And when you talk about the Emergency Powers Act, um, is there any thought as well in the General Assembly to uh, modifying that? And rather than having to have a resolution like this go through the legislature in order to end that, having it uh, just on its own and after a period of, you know, say, 30 or 60 days, because it seems like a year into this, we're far past the definition of what would qualify legally as an emergency.
3: No, it's funny, you should ask. I happen to have legislation that does that as well. uh, Oh, great. I actually didn't know
1: uh, that for the viewers. This is a sincere (laughs) question, (laughs) so go ahead.
3: So that was one of the first bills that I introduced when we reconvened for the new session. Uh, is reforming the Emergency Services Act so that, among other things, it expires automatically. Because, you know, it's been hard to get the legislature to step up and actively, you know, cut off the governor's powers. But if they simply elapsed automatically, uh, then I think that would change the dynamic a lot. And, you know, the legislature would then have to come back and actively vote to extend them, uh, as opposed to them just, you know, lasting, lasting for perpetuity unless someone intervenes.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, and in full disclosure, I'm part of the legal team that's representing Pastor John MacArthur and Grace Community Church there in California. And one of the arguments that we've been making um, is a separation of powers issue to say that this is basically the legislature that's ceding its legislative authority to the executive to then just continue to legislate. Uh, just w- once the Emergency Powers Act is then in effect, then that's giving the governor just sole discretion to be a tyrant and to be one person person vested with the powers of the legislature. And so it seems like the Emergency Powers Act, as written, uh, is in violation of the concept of separation of powers. And without obviously commenting on our case or any of that specifically, I just wanted to make that disclosure uh, for the viewers. But um, within the context of of the separation of powers, what's your view as a legislator on how far overreaching the governor uh, has acted in California?
3: Well, you know, I'm very happy to comment on that because, you know, I sued the governor precisely on that basis, that he's violating the separation of powers. And uh, my co-plaintiff is uh, James Gallagher, who's another legislator, who's also the joint author uh, of the resolution that we're talking about. But we filed suit against the governor last June uh, for overstepping his authority uh, under even the Emergency Services Act and essentially making law in a way that violates uh, the separation of powers. And the California Superior Court agreed with us. We won our trial against the governor last October. And the judge ruled that the governor uh, had abused his emergency powers. But we did also make the argument, uh, along the lines of what you're saying, Jenna, that if it is true that the governor can do what he claims uh, he can do under the Emergency Services Act, then that would render the entire act an unconstitutional uh, delegation of legislative power in violation of the separation of powers. So by either theory, we told the court, the governor's actions cannot stand. Either he's violating the Emergency Services Act or the Emergency Services Act itself violates the Constitution.
1: And, and that's great that you're willing to step up and actually sue the governor and to uh, make sure that the constitutionally vested authorities under both the California state constitution and, of course, when we talk about the U.S. constitution and some of the federal issues like free exercise of religion, making sure there isn't a violation of the separation of powers, that you're willing to challenge those. And so uh, where is your case? I know you said you won the, the trial. Is that in the appellate process or where is that in, uh, in the current stage of litigation?
3: Yeah, we are uh, patiently, or maybe not so patiently anymore, awaiting a decision from the Court of Appeals. The governor immediately ran to the Court of Appeals to seek an extraordinary writ. And so that has been fully briefed since December 29th, uh, and we're still waiting. Uh, But ultimately, it will be the first precedent-setting decision uh, in California on the limits of a governor's emergency powers.
1: That's great. We really wish you luck on that. And uh, what do you expect in terms of this resolution and the next steps uh, for getting this heard with support?
3: Well, we're going to push for a hearing immediately because, you know, every day, this goes on we're doing more and more damage to our communities and we're seeing more and more of a, a violation of the basic you know public trust and that is in a free society you know the the burden is on the government to justify restrictions on the liberty of citizens and there simply is no justification uh, for the restrictions that we have now and so every day that that goes on is simply unacceptable
1: and that's wonderfully said. And so um, Assemblymember Kevin Kiley, thank you so much. And everyone please follow him on, on Twitter, on social media, and call uh, if you live in the state of California, call your assembly members, tell them to support this resolution. He's absolutely right, and we really commend your efforts there and thanks so much for being with me. And now we're going to just the word. Psalm 139, 13 through 18 says, For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance, being yet unformed. And in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you.